I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 28. I zoomed out to focus on the bigger picture during our consideration of chapters 13 to 27. We address the text, but in bigger sections, not verset by verset. I'm going to zoom back in on chapter 28 because I really like this passage and because Isaiah is here making a significant shift to the fourth major section of the book of the king. I want to emphasize that shift. Motier makes the shift clear in his chapter divisions. He recognizes 13 to 27 as the third major section in the book of the king titled The Universal Kingdom. And then for a fourth major section of the book, he groups chapters 28 to 27 and calls it the Lord of History. In the Universal Kingdom section, Isaiah focused our attention on all of humankind as he moved from oracles concerning specific nations to oracles concerning symbolic nations to the universal city of man. In that major section, Isaiah has already showed God to be the one whose plans inevitably come to pass. He is the Lord of history. In this section, which we're calling the Lord of history, Isaiah digs into a real-life example from his own ministry of how God is sovereign over the nations. And in doing that, he supports this vision of God's plan we've seen working with all the nations through all time to the end of this present heaven and earth. Considering this series of events in Isaiah's life gives support to the prophecy that he's just given us about the future. As we make this shift from the universal kingdom to a particular example of God working as the Lord of history, I'm going to first review major themes suggested by the unusual structure of chapters 13 to 27, then we'll get into the specifics of chapter 28. So first, five themes of the universal kingdom. In our last lesson, I focused on the chiastic structure of chapters 24-27 as the best way to see the contrast between the city of man and Zion, the city of God. And once you recognize the chiastic parallels that move us from judgment to hope and back again, it becomes easier to read the text straight through in a linear fashion. Reading 24-27 straight through, we can recognize a five-part division that parallels the five-part division in the two cycles of oracles. Remember, we divided chapters 13 to 27 into three cycles of five. In chapters 13 to 20, we had one cycle of five oracles. In chapters 21 to 23, we had a second cycle of five oracles. And in 24 to 27, even though we don't have five oracles, we can see a five-part division. So imagine those three cycles lined up in three columns beside each other. So you have cycle one, cycle two, cycle three, three columns, three columns of five, one, two, three, four, five going down, and then another one, two, three, four, five, and then another one, two, three, four, five. Then imagine moving across row one. And so you're considering the first oracle or passage in each cycle. And then we can move across row two, considering the second oracle or passage in each cycle, then row three, row four, row five. That's what we're going to do. Following Motier, we're going to move horizontally across each cycle to draw out one significant theme from each row. So we'll have five themes. Okay, so moving across the first row of our three cycles, we begin the first cycle with the overthrow of Babylon, 
that massive cultural center that represents human political strength. Then the first oracle of the second cycle again described Babylon's destruction, this time emphasizing the demise of human religion as Babylon's gods fell. In 24.1-20, the first passage of our third cycle, the destruction of all human civilization is depicted as the fall of a city. The city of chaos is broken down. Each case is, is an example of the destruction of the city of man, and in each case there's depicted a, a survival of the remnant of God's people. That provides us with our first summary principle. The Lord's people are preserved in a crashing world. Looking across the second row, we begin with the second oracle of the first cycle with advice to Philistia that during a period of judgment, they should seek refuge in the city of the Lord. In the second oracle of the second cycle, we asked the night watchman how long, and he told us, come back again. Then in 24, 21 to 23, the second passage of our third cycle, we're told that after many days, the spiritual and earthly powers of evil will be punished. Then the glory of the Lord will shine in Zion so bright as to put sun and moon to shame. In each case, there's a period of waiting, and that suggests to us a second summary principle. God's promises are certain even when they seem to delay. Now moving across the third row, we begin with Moab in crisis, choosing the way of self-reliance. In the third oracle of the second cycle, refugees fled into the wilderness of Kedar after the end of the empire, which had given temporary collective human security. In both cases, in Moab and Kedar, only a few remain. In 25.1-12, the third passage of our third cycle, the few who remain are the remnant welcomed into Zion. And as in the first cycle, the Moabites are mentioned in the third as representatives of the folly of human self-sufficiency. They're left outside the feast hall. God's feast in Zion, contrasted with the failure of human effort, provides our third summary principle. Human desire for satisfaction and security can only be met by setting aside the illusion of self-sufficiency and submitting to the joy of relationship with God in Zion. In the fourth row, we see the people of God. We begin in the first cycle with unfaithful Israel who sought security with Syria. In that oracle, the city of Damascus is removed and the strong cities of Israel are forsaken. In the fourth oracle of the second cycle, unfaithful Judah experienced the devastation of Jerusalem. Trusting in their own abilities and plans, they frantically tore down houses to repair Jerusalem's walls and redirect the water flow to create a new cistern in their crisis, all to no avail. Then in 26.1-21, the fourth passage of the third cycle the faithful remnant find themselves inside the strong city whose peace is guaranteed by the presence of God, the divine rock of their salvation. And so we get our fourth summary principle. The people of God, though caught up in the turmoil of human history, already live in the strong city through relationship with God, our rock. And now the final row, the oracle concerning Egypt surprised us in the first cycle with a declaration that Egypt and Assyria would share the inheritance of God equally with Israel. Then in the fifth oracle of the second cycle, a cycle almost devoid of any hope at all, the last word on Tyre is that she would provide tribute to the Lord. And finally, in 27, 1-13, to 13, 
The last passage of the third cycle ends with a threshing from the flowing stream of Euphrates, so up there at Assyria, to the brook of Egypt. And it represents a gathering in of Israel from the nations. Our fifth summary principle is this. God plans to gather to himself a remnant from every people, nation, tongue, and tribe. A broad overview of Isaiah's consideration of the universal human kingdom provides us with these five themes, these five principles of faith. The Lord's people are preserved in a crashing world. Two, God's promises are certain even when they seem to delay. Three, human desire for satisfaction and security can only be met by setting aside the illusion of self-sufficiency and submitting to the joy of relationship with God in Zion. Four, the people of God, though caught up in the turmoil of human history, already live in a strong city through relationship with God our rock. And five, God will gather to himself a remnant from every people, nation, tongue, and tribe. Isaiah expects the leaders of Judah to make policy for the nation based on these principles of faith. But it's one thing to say we believe these things will happen in the far future to later generations, and another thing to actually plan our lives around these beliefs. So Isaiah returns to contemporary events to remind his readers of something most of them have lived through, if not them, then surely their parents. Isaiah finished putting together his masterwork after the invasion of Assyria, but he lived through it and he ministered to the nation under Hezekiah during that invasion. So these things are written here to remind Judah that faith in God is not only for the future. Faith in God's for now. We have so recently experienced a major illustration in our own nation of God protecting us, God being our rock and our security. So if that has just happened, shouldn't we also live with it and expect it to be true of the future? That God is sovereign and we can trust him and we can build our lives on him. In chapter 28, we've backed up a little bit to give context. Hezekiah will stand firm against Sennacherib when his forces surround Jerusalem. We'll get to that part of the story in chapter 36. But before Hezekiah takes a stand with God as his rock, he sent emissaries to Egypt to agree upon a mutual covenant to ensure security against Assyria. And he did that without Isaiah's support. Isaiah is against that move. Isaiah sees the leaders of Judah giving lip service to God while seeking security in their own political scheming. Looking to Egypt for salvation is no different than when Ahaz looked to Assyria for protection from the Israel-Syria alliance. You know, we know how that worked out. Now, now Assyria is the problem. Chapter 28 is the first of six woes that make up the structure of this major section, the Lord of History. I'll address the big picture structure in our next lesson. For now, I'm ready to get in the text. I'll divide the text into two halves, each of which divide into two subsections. Isaiah starts by revealing Ephraim's folly in 1 through 13, and then in 14 to 29, calls the leaders of Judah to hear the word of the Lord. In the first subsection of Ephraim's folly, the false glory of Israel fades, while the faithful remnant recognizes that the Lord is their true glory. This first subsection is in 28, 1 to 6, and it's set off at the beginning and the end by reference to the word crown. I'm going to start with just the first three verses. 
So this is Isaiah 28, 1 through 3. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent, as a storm of hell, a tempest of destruction. Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he has cast it down to the earth with his hand. Underfoot shall be trampled the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Drunkards of Ephraim wear a proud crown. The word crown should probably be translated here as garland, such as worn by revelers at a party. Many wear the crown, not just one king. A garland of flowers and greenery would wilt soon after the party is over or even during the party. And so when Isaiah writes, woe to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, the image of this quickly wilting party garland suggests the transience of Ephraim's beauty. She is fading as a nation. Samaria, the capital of Ephraim, sat on a hill at the end of the valley, and that may be the referent of the third verse set. Isaiah writes, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. So head of the valley could have layered symbolism. Head could mean the hill at one end. So one end is the head of the the valley and on that hill is Samaria. Head could also refer to Samaria as the capital city. It's the head city, the head of Ephraim. But referring to Samaria as head is also referring to the governing leaders of Ephraim in the same way saying Washington or Moscow or Beijing is the head, might not refer to the city, but might refer to the people of influence who make up the government. You know, So that decision was made by Moscow. That doesn't mean the city, that means the leaders in the city. This government is depicted as a group of drunk people at a party, and they're wearing garland crowns, and those crowns wilt before the night even ends. Then in verse 2, we shift our image to a coming invasion. The Lord has a strong and mighty agent. The Assyrian king Sargon II will overrun the northern kingdom in 722 BC, sack the capital city Samaria, and send her inhabitants into exile. That's during the first decade of Hezekiah's reign, as he reigns in southern Judah. Here, the army of Assyria is depicted as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction. Fierce rain will pour down and become a flood of overflowing water. This is a storm, not a river, but the effect is similar to the image in chapter 8 of the mighty Euphrates overflowing its banks to flood Israel. And so we have that image already in our mind. This language, it might also evoke Noah's flood when God cast down waters to cleanse the land. The second verse out of verse 2 might serve double duty. Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he has cast it down to the earth with his hand. He's cast it down. What what has he cast down? Well, the preceding verse sets make it sound like he has cast down hail and rain. But the next verse makes it sound like he's cast down Ephraim's crown. Underfoot shall be trampled the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Ephraim is at an end. Verse 4 affirms that idea with a brief but shocking image. 4a repeats the idea of a fading flower at the head of a valley, and that connects us to verse 1. The jolt comes with the abrupt switch of images in 4b. Try to imagine this. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer 
which one sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. We're familiar with fading flowers as a picture of mankind's transient reality. We're here today and gone tomorrow. I think the image of a ripe fig picked and popped into the mouth is original to Isaiah. It's an everyday mundane image, and yet it creates such an image of how fleeting life is and how someone else can come and just end it. It's it's like the first fruit. It just begins to show. It's just become ripe. This this morning it has it's ready, and the first passerby plucks it and swallows it, and it's gone. Here this morning, gone in a moment, and that's how quickly Ephraim will have been and then be no more. With Ephraim gone, the faithful ones turn their eyes to God alone. There is no false glory left to depend on. To verses 5 and 6, In that day the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. God and his kingdom last forever. He is the everlasting glory of those who love him, a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. This is the simple message that Israel forgot. No matter what you accomplish or what you have, remember always that it is in the Lord God that you have glory. This is where your value is. It's in God. And unless you start with him, nothing else is going to matter. All your work and achievements depend on whether or not God is your foundation. With God at your center, you political leaders will find the wisdom you need to rule. And since Israel is is here pictured as destroyed, we see that these verses are a message to Judah. They're still there. And you, you leaders who are still there, in God you will find wisdom to rule, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, and the power you need to protect your city, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. That is Judah if you see Israel and take the message to heart. So you see how these first six verses of chapter 28 are marked off by the repeated reference to the beautiful crown, the fading false crown versus the eternal glorious crown, who is Yahweh. In the next subsection, 7 to 13, the religious leaders of the nation mock Isaiah's call to faith. They mock his words to them. Commentators disagree on whether we've already shifted to Jerusalem or not. Is Isaiah describing a scene at the end of Ephraim, or is this a scene in Judah? Motir thinks these verses come out of Isaiah's own experience. Isaiah is the one being made fun of. That could very well be. No one knows with any precision what the actual occasion actually was. Motir suggests that we imagine the the occasion to be the return of ambassadors from making treaty with Egypt. And we'll see the Egypt connection later. The leaders of the nation are full of themselves and full of strong drink. Isaiah rebukes them for trusting in fickle Egypt rather than trusting in God. They mock Isaiah for his simplistic faith. That's a possible scenario. Oswald, on the other hand, believes we're still imagining the leaders in Ephraim. He doesn't think it's a specific party where Isaiah was present. He does think it's a description of Israel based on the opposition Isaiah has experienced in his encounters with cynical religious leadership in Judah. And Isaiah knows that he can apply that same attitude to Ephraim. 
deciding whether this image is meant to implicate leaders in Samaria or in Jerusalem may not really be crucial. The attitude expressed could easily apply to both. So it's enough that we get the general idea of what's going on here. I'll read the whole and then go back through the text. This is Isaiah 28, 7 to 13. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, through stammering lips and a foreign tongue, he will speak to this people. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Verse 7 begins with a poetic use of repetition that mimics drunkards at the party. So you have to imagine a person in the movement that you get from this repetition. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. They stagger, they reel, they stagger, they reel. They totter like a drunkard. We're surprised when Isaiah identifies the partygoers as priests and prophet. We expect seriousness and decorum and moral uprightness from this class of leader. Isaiah doesn't describe this as a religious event. There's no reference to temple or to altar or to incense stand. Priests and prophets celebrate together with the other elites of power, but they don't look any different than anyone else. In fact, Isaiah has given us this idea that when they have visions and when they render judgment, it's it's like a drunk person. That's how much you should trust them. They're confused by wine. Don't listen to what they say. Verse 8 adds a realistic bit of detail to help us imagine how far gone the party is. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. Yeah, that's not not a party I think I want to be at. The tables certainly decorated nicely at the beginning of the night are now full of filthy vomit. This is a party way past the social drinking stage. The vomit's not from one person. There's not a single clean place. So they're all in this together. That's Isaiah's description of the leadership of Judah. And with that picture as a backdrop, counselors in that government mock Isaiah's words. They belittle his message as having no place in the halls of power, but fit only for the nursery room. That's verse 9. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? Now, Isaiah's word sounds like something that you should go teach little children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In reality, that's (laughs) that little song. If you could just live that way, there's so much power in the, the simple. 
the actual Hebrew of what they say is something like Saul, lay, Saul, Saul, lay, Saul, call, lay, call, call, lay, call. And interpreters are not sure whether there's supposed to be any meaning to that. The second phrase, call, lay, call, can be interpreted line on line. The first phrase, Saul on Saul, may literally mean do on do. And if it's intended to convey meaning, you know, one option is that it means to do things in an orderly fashion. Isaiah's words aren't complex and twisted. They're simple and orderly. The word line will be connected later with the cornerstone in verse 17. I will make justice the measuring line. So line on line, maybe there's we're supposed to get a meaning here. But even with that connection, maybe this mocking is supposed to be without meaning. Some tra- translators think these phrases should simply be taken as someone speaking without meaning, like blah, 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 wah, 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 wah. Or they should be t- the talk of an infant. Ba, 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 da, 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 da. So whether Isaiah's original audience would have heard a specific meaning in the words or not, we still get the gist. Prophet and priest are making fun of Isaiah's simplicity. For he says order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. It's a bit ironic considering how much elegance and complexity we've already encountered in Isaiah's poetic prophecy. We have seen the intricacy of his structure, the power of his imagery, the skill with which he uses language. But it's not the poetry they're making fun of. It's Isaiah's exhortation to begin everything with God. He told Ahaz and the people of Judah under his rule, do not make alliance with Assyria. He exhorted in our earlier chapters, put your faith in God. God must be central. Trust his word, you know, to the word, to the testimony. Express your faith by a holy life and by caring for orphan and widow. That's what you need to be focused on. He's telling the leaders of Hezekiah's court the same thing. Do not make alliance with Egypt. Put your faith in God. God must be central. Trust his word. Be holy. Care for the poor and oppressed. Isaiah's message, no matter how beautifully it's packaged, sounds simplistic to these worldly religious leaders. Indeed, there is a simplicity to it. There is also depth, but you can't get to the depth of true relationship with God if you do not start with the simple beginning of trusting God and his word as central to everything you do. Trust God. Really trust God. You have to start there. But these experienced leaders deal in realpolitik. They deal in covenants and then backroom treaties behind the covenants, and you're playing this guy off against that guy, and it's complex and it's deceptive. Faith-based answers or morality-based principles are good to keep the masses happy. And that's good for your kids. It's good for your basic Jewish family. Live right, do good. That's great for them. But it has no serious place in the policies of politics and government. And the counselors who are supposed to contribute spiritually and ethically to the discussion— They're there in the room, the priest and the prophet. They've given themselves over with the rest to cynical pragmatism. Oswald comments, There is no more hardened or cynical person in the world than a religious leader who has seared his conscience. For them, tender appeals, which would move anyone else, become sources of amusement. They have learned how to debunk everything and to believe nothing, all the while speaking loftily of matters of the Spirit. And so, because the leaders of Israel and Judah will not be taught by the word of God, they must be taught by the hard reality of life. Isaiah turns their critique around against them. 
you make fun of my speech, saying you cannot understand my childish words, very soon you will be ruled by a people whose words you do not understand. God has offered you rest. You have rejected it, and so you will be defeated, and you will be taken captive by foreigners whose speech means nothing to you. That's the meaning of 11.13. Indeed, through stammering lips and a foreign tongue, he will speak to this people. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. This woe began with a judgment of doom on Ephraim that emphasized the ephemeral nature of human glory in society. Hope for humanity is found in the revelation of God's will. But in the second subsection of the woe, the spiritual counselors of the nation, men positioned to hear and communicate God's word, show themselves to be cynical politicians who mock God's prophet. They deal in complex tried strategies, and they live at the level of CEOs and presidents and congressmen. They don't have time for the revealed word of God. This is real life. We don't have time for that. The second half of the woe has clearly moved us to Judah. Ephraim's folly has been revealed. Judah's leaders are now exhorted to not make the same mistake. We will see in the first subsection that Judah has already followed Israel in folly, making for themselves a covenant of death. In the second subsection, Isaiah will call them to trust the wisdom of God. Judah's destructive covenant of death is decried in verses 14 to 22. We begin with just the first two verses. This is Isaiah 28, 14 to 15. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people, who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Whether the men taunting Isaiah earlier in verse 9 and 10 should be understood as men from Israel or Judah, that attitude is here applied to those who rule Jerusalem. Isaiah calls them scoffers. Then Isaiah puts words into their mouths. You say I speak as to infants? I say you heartily embrace a covenant of death. And this is not some occult practice that they're engaging in. These leaders are excited about the covenant they've made. They think their skilled diplomacy has won security. So they're going to come back and we made this covenant of life with Egypt. But Isaiah puts words in their mouths and he's, he argues, no, 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 no. The covenant with Egypt against the will of God, you're bragging about a covenant of death. We have brought death to Judah. That's what you're really saying. I don't know if Isaiah's contemporary audience was supposed to know immediately here in chapter 28 that this treaty he's talking about was the one made with Egypt or whether the prophet was building up to a later reveal. Uh, Egypt is not going to be named until chapter 30, and then we're all going to know it's Egypt. I know that we as readers, we're far enough removed from the situation that you can't pick up from the context that we're talking about Egypt, but it's going to be made explicit. That's what happened. Judah's leaders have sought safety from Assyria in an alliance with Pharaoh. The first verse set of 15b accurately communicates the thoughts of Judah's leaders. They think the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. 
But then again, Isaiah puts into their mouths the reality of what they've done. Though they don't admit it to themselves, this is really the outcome of what they're saying. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Isaiah has taken the words of the politicians and reinterpreted them according to what they've really done and what the real outcome is. When you tell us you made a covenant with Egypt, you claim security. But I tell you, when you announce your covenant with Egypt, the reality of your action is a rejection of God resulting in a covenant with death. Egypt will not protect you. You are deceiving yourself and you're deceiving the people. Isaiah then declares the word of God to the leaders of Judah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So I know you recognize that passage. Both Peter and Paul quote this verse in reference to Jesus. Paul in Romans 9.33 and Peter in 1 Peter 2.6. The immediate context doesn't identify the cornerstone with the Davidic Messiah. Peter and Paul may have connected Isaiah's cornerstone to Jesus with encouragement from Psalm 118.22 and 26. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, that was the phrase shouted by the crowd during Jesus' triumphal entry before his crucifixion. Verse 26 in Psalm 118 is clearly the coming Messiah, and Jesus embraced that identity. But in the psalm, he's, it's, he's also the chief cornerstone. Isaiah may have made that link himself in Psalm 118. Peter and Paul could also have made a connection here in Isaiah without Psalm 118, just from the broader context. The Hebrew for laying the stone could either be rendered, I am laying a stone in Zion, or I am laying a stone Zion. The first emphasizes a stone to be laid in Zion, so that could be someone else being laid inside of Zion. The other sees the stone as Zion. And the imagery of Zion and the Davidic ruler are intertwined so much in Isaiah's vision of God's kingdom that it's not easy to discern which is in view here. One seems to assume the other. The language here seems to lean towards the stone as the cornerstone of a new foundation for the new city. But the language in verse 17 of justice and righteousness points to God's character, which we expect to see exemplified in the Messiah. It's language both from the declaration of a son who will be born in chapter 9, his, his government will be just and righteous, and the root of Jesse in chapter 11. So even if the, the immediate context makes it sound like the stun is the cornerstone of a foundation of the new city, that cornerstone can still be the Messiah. He is the foundation. It is through the Messiah that the right and true foundation of the new city is to be laid. And then there's the word testing in this verse. That can be taken two ways. The firm foundation will be laid with a cornerstone that is either a tested stone, which says something about the stone, or a stone of testing, which says something about the stone's purpose. And both ideas are true in regard to Jesus. He was tested by Satan in the wilderness. He was tested again in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was tested by his death and shown to be true through the power of the Holy Spirit in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is a tested stone. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the cornerstone to any real foundation of life. Jesus also proves to be a stone of testing. 
will you believe in him or will you stumble over him? Here, Isaiah challenges the leaders of Jerusalem to trust in the stone that God lays. Security is found when God is the rock, when he is the foundation. Jesus made that point when he urged his listeners to build their house on the rock of God's word and not on sand. The covenant with Egypt is a foundation of sand. The final verse that ends with the word disturbed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. That word is used 20 times by Isaiah, always with the sense of hurrying. So he who believes in it will not be hurrying around. And we can imagine the serious men and women in the halls of power scurrying here and there to make diplomatic deals that will ensure Judah's security. It, and it's not too hard to turn that on ourselves and imagine our own rushing about hither and yon, sometimes at a frantic pace, working to ensure our own safety and the security of our family. This is Isaiah's simple message, so difficult to truly accept and apply in day-to-day life. Remember that God is your salvation. Even though the building is not complete, even though you look ahead to a city of peace, as of yet still unrealized, trust in God. God is building his kingdom on Jesus Christ, who is the true cornerstone. Whatever challenges you face in modern society, you can experience peace and security through faith in him if Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of your foundation. If you are resting yourselves on him, then you don't have to scurry about hither and thither and be disturbed, but you can rest in security in Christ. About Judah, Robert Alter comments, in place of a city ruled by drunken idiots, God will establish a just, firm-founded city, while those who made a covenant with death will be swept away. That idea of being swept away is communicated in verses 17 to 22. Rain and hail were mentioned earlier on in this woe, where verse 2 imagined a storm that would come on Ephraim. Isaiah's use of the word hail here connects Israel and Judah together in divine judgment. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning, it will pass through, any time during the day or night. And to understand what it means will be sheer terror. The bed is too short on which to stretch out and the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim, He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. And now do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For of decisive destruction I have heard from the Lord God of hosts on all the earth. The mention in verse 21 to Mount Perizim in the valley of Gibeon refers to two battles David fought against the Philistines. David describes the victory God gave him, saying, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. The water of God's wrath broke through David's enemies, but here the water of that wrath is going to break through Judah. Build on the rock, or the storm will wash you away. Isaiah concludes the first woe in 23-29, to 
with a call to trust in God's wisdom. He gives us two related images. The first describes the wise sowing of a farmer. The second describes the wise reaping of a farmer. The wise farmer sows in verses 23 to 26. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow deal and scatter cumin? And plant wheat rows, barley in its place, and rye within its area? For his God instructs and teaches him properly. What points Isaiah making? It's not precisely clear. Here are two options. First, the point could have to do with God's work of judgment about to come on Judah. The farmer must treat the earth violently. He turns it. Listen to the verbs. He turns it, plows it, levels its surface. Turning up the land allows the farmer to plant new seeds that will bear fruit. If God has taught this to the farmer, then we should not be surprised when God does the same to Judah. Violently turning up the land to plant living seed that will produce true fruit. Or the point could have to do with the faith of Judah's leaders. If God has taught these natural principles to farmers so that they might sow with a view towards harvest, should not Judah's leaders look to God for the wisdom they need to lead the nation and bring about a good harvest? As God instructs the farmer, God will also instruct the prophet, the priest, and the politician, but they must start with trust in God and his word. There are two options you can think about. Which of those is this image describing? Is it God's work of sowing, or is it the leader trusting the wisdom of God so that they might sow well? Whichever point Isaiah has just made, it looks like he's pretty much restating that point with the image of reaping in verses 27 to 29. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever, because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Again, the violence done to the dill and cumin in the process of reaping could point to the result of God's judgment. The faithful must trust that God is at work reaping the harvest he has planted, and he will use uh, just as much pain and suffering or violence as is necessary, and the different methods employed for different crops may suggest that God will act differently with Judah than he did with Israel. His wisdom is great. He will bring about a righteous end, even though the process may require pain. Or we may wonder whether a challenge to the leadership of Judah is again in mind. The farmer knows how to go about the business of reaping a harvest. He knows how to treat the different grains differently. His wisdom comes from God. The wisdom to lead a people also comes from God. As the text says, God's counsel is wonderful and his wisdom great. Trust in the Lord. Whether the two images describe the wise work of God, who, like a farmer, knows how to bring about a fruitful harvest, or the two images call leaders to act wisely, trusting God to teach the politician as he teaches the farmer. Either way, Isaiah exhorts the leaders of Judah to depend on the wisdom of God as he carries out his sovereign plan. Trust in God. That message applies equally to leaders of the nation state and to everyday believers. In whatever we do, trust that God has a plan and that God, in his wisdom, will bring about that plan. 
we may be at the stage of the turning of the soil. We may be at the stage of threshing out the grain. God is working for the good of you who love him, even if the stage you are in right now is painful and you don't yet see the fruit. The word of God is your foundation. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. You may need to do some hurrying around to get your chores and responsibilities done, but in the hurry-burry of life, don't become frantic. This simple message still applies. God is your rock. He is your security. He is your rest. He is your future. Trust God. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the book of Acts.